Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your co-host, David Cobb, coming at you from Eureka, California, joined by co-host and producer Michael O'Neill in Syracuse, New York. Howdy, Michael. Howdy, David. So listen, Michael, this is Open Lines, and this is the program that I really like the most because it gives Greens an opportunity to talk about whatever they want to talk about. Of course, I know what's on my mind right now is the LA teacher strike, the the Yellow Vest movement sweeping the globe, and just how the heck we can get one going in the U.S., uh, Venezuela, and of course, the old standby, Russia. Russia! Russia! So... There's lots to talk about. You know, Michael, I wanted to actually kick it to you first and foremost, though, because you had some thoughts. You were the one who suggested the Yellow Vest movement. I want to give you an opportunity to actually frame this one out. Well, David, um, I've been thinking a lot lately and, and reflecting on what you know some people in, in progressive media have been talking about uh, in terms of, well, we have this stultifying strangled two-party corporate system you've got you know two parties where at least the elite wings of them are two wings of the same rotten vulture bird right and so it's maybe going to be a while before we can win significant structural reforms to the system through purely electoral means. And of course, David, as nonviolent eco-socialist revolutionaries, even though we are both uh, organizers within the Green Party, we understand that electoral activity is only one tool in the toolbox for winning the changes that we so desperately need in the time that we have. And so folks saying like, you know, we need to get in the streets again. Uh, and we need to get in the streets like we see the, the yellow vest folks in the streets. And while I think that is on the face of it true, we do need a pervasive militant, uh, you know, street protest culture. That's part of our broader left movement. You can't just say that, uh, you know, we're just going to put on yellow vests and then we can replicate what the yellow vests movement has has uh, achieved over there or what they're doing over there. There is a historical context to how does France as a nation and as a people and as a history relate to street protest? And, you know, how do uh, the people of France relate to their police and the degree to which their police are militarized or not? And also, you know, what is the state of of, you know, left politics or transformative socialist or eco-socialist politics in France. And those are not things that we can just put on here as easily as putting on a yellow vest. Not to say that the folks in France have it easy. Um, and also just even looking at the yellow vest themselves, part of that, those street demonstrations initially came from somewhat reactionary uh, positions in terms of uh, there being yellow vest uh, protesters who were concerned about immigration in France and thinking that France can, was not able to contain immigration. Uh, and, and, but in large part, it was also resistance to the, uh, the gasoline and, and fossil fuel taxes that were being paid at the consumer level. So that could be interpreted as, oh, these people are resisting actions uh, to take on climate change. But through real organizing and through real base building and conversations and, and education within the movement, the movement has moved much further to the left in understanding that 
the problem isn't that we, you know, we shouldn't be fighting climate change, but that it shouldn't be everyday consumers who are bearing the brunt of of paying for the costs of fossil fuels and that the problem is not immigrants and that it's in fact austerity that has been imposed, uh, you know, by the elites, by neoliberalism, by their, you know, duopoly parties that, you know, dominate most of their parliament there. So even within the yellow vest movement, there has been negotiation and conversation and real organizing going on to uh, get people to where we see it today. So that's a lot to handle. It's a lot to discuss. It is. And I appreciate you really framed it out uh, eloquently and uh, extensively. I think from my perspective and uh, to our viewers and listeners, I really want to underscore a couple of things. Number one, the Yellow Vest movement that is happening not just in France but has begun to spread all across the globe is a reaction to austerity and neoliberalism. It is, by definition, populist. A populist response uh, or a populist activity or populism itself is always ordinary folks reacting against the elites, the ruling class, the oligarchs. But let's be very clear, as Michael uh, talked about, populism can either be right-wing populism, which leads to fascism, or it can be left-wing populism, which leads to socialism. So I am an eco-socialist. I don't make any bones about it, as is Michael. The Green Party, of course, has taken uh, an eco-socialist position within our platform. So we are left populist, but we are populist. We are railing against uh, the neoliberal agenda and the austerity that's being imposed because late-stage capitalism uh, is basically forcing it. What I also think is interesting is, as Michael pointed out, the Yellow Vest movement is not merely putting on a Yellow Vest and going out into the streets. Um, it is, that is a part of it, but let's be crystal clear about something. The Yellow Vest movement did not get a permit from the government to go into the streets. So although I participate in uh, demonstrations that are permitted and march around, I am reminded of the difference between last year's climate march or what I call the climate parade uh, versus what we're seeing here where people are into the streets because they are being intentionally disruptive. And I really want to underscore, Michael used the word militant. Remember that militant doesn't mean violence. It means being willing to be disruptive. That to me, Michael, is why the, uh, the Yellow Vest movement is so powerful is because it, has, it, is, it didn't just happen, right? Uh, it comes out of organizing and educating and a culture of recognizing one's power, but the power to disrupt. If you're not willing to make the ruling elite pay a price and suffer pain, then you're not able to exercise power. So to me, I'm interested in working with other people who are calling for a yellow vest movement in the U.S. who understand that what we're talking about is being disruptive and being militant. And from my way of thinking, it's worth pointing out that Teen Vogue has asked the question, is it time for a general strike? And ladies and gentlemen, sisters and brothers, people of all gender, including non-gender uh, uh, conforming human beings watching A Green Way Forward on Facebook or listening to this audio broadcast, 
What does it mean when we live in a society where the so-called left media is lagging behind Teen Vogue? Michael, did you see that article in Teen Vogue? Uh, I had a glance at it. Yeah. Um, I I got to say, look, David, I got to say, I am I am skeptical about how some quarters of the left use the term general strike. I think there are folks who uh, within the left use the word general strike in a way that does not mean general and does not really include it as a strike. And so (laughs) uh, so 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 convince me, like sell me on it. Like what 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 were they advocating in Teen Vogue in terms of what they meant by general strike? Fair enough. And uh, I think that uh, what was interesting, if you go to that article and you know what, I'll, I was using Teen Vogue as a as a shtick, really. Right. Uh, but what I really want to underscore is the concept of a general strike is having conversation uh, in, in in quarters that I have not seen before. But I'll I'll take your your question head on and say. For me, I believe a general strike would be one uh, in which we refuse to participate in day-to-day activities. It, it would mean not going to work. It would also mean shutting down b- roads and uh, interstates. It would be shutting down airports. It would be literally disrupting business as usual. And, Michael, I'll use this as a segue uh, into – The fact that the shutdown that just ended, at least until February 15th, uh, this happened in large part uh, because you were seeing the flight attendants union, you were seeing other union, the uh, TSA, uh, you were seeing uh, organized labor begin to talk about a general strike. And you we began to see some of the, quote, essential personnel in government being willing to talk about simply not showing up because I want to really underscore that even in this age of automation, robotics, and technology, it still takes working people to make things work. So to me, when I talk about a general strike, I'm talking about actually shutting shit down. Right. So uh, in American culture and American labor culture, strikes are a very big deal when they happen, a much bigger deal than they should be, because the strike weapon has been allowed to atrophy for so long. But you do have, uh, we have had a radical resurgence within the last couple of years of the strike weapon, especially within the sector of teachers. And and we're going to talk about the LA teacher strike in just a little bit. And so, yes, the idea of a multi-sector strike you know, at key places in the logistics and transportation apparatus, which so much of our hyper-connected society depends on, absolutely, that strikes fear into the heart of the, you know, bourgeois elite governing apparatus, all the way from the actual elected officials down to the hoity-toity jet-setting donors who make their corporate campaigns possible. That's exactly right, Michael. And what I would say is you are, again, making the point that the strike weapon, that 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 tactic, that ability to do it only works if we're able to disrupt something that the ruling elite want or need. So just like electoral politics is not the end all be all, it is simply a tactical place uh, and an important one to engage our social change work. So, too, is a strike merely a tactic. And it can only be used if it is actually 
properly focused. Now, I'm going to actually segue uh, into the L.A. teacher strike by actually reminding myself, you, Michael O'Neill, and also viewers and listeners of A Green Way Forward that the L.A. teacher strike also didn't just come out of nowhere. There's a context there. And let's remember we had the Chicago teacher strike, the West Virginia uh, teacher strike. What you're seeing are public school teachers willing to strike not merely for their own selves, but also on the on behalf of students where they're striking for uh, lower classroom strike, uh, sizes. They're striking uh, for public education as a concept because there is a difference between trade unionism using the strike to extract uh, you know, better uh, uh, a pay scale for their workers and folks willing to use the strike in order to advance the cause of social justice. So uh, I think it's important to recognize that there are still choke points uh, that we can utilize and that we should utilize. One of those choke points are transportation. Another one is the, uh, the public sector broadly. Uh, oh, my God. Jane just wrote in in the comment section to said disrupt the Super Bowl. Jane, thank you so much. I got to admit, whenever I saw that, uh, my it just made my heart go pitter patter because that's a disruption that gives us an opportunity to engage a conversation in a place where ordinary people are going to be uh, turning their attention. What do you think, Michael O'Neill? I think there's a high likelihood that Trump and his people were thinking about the Super Bowl and what a, a, a transit gridlock, a strike-induced transit gridlock would mean for the Super Bowl in Atlanta, which is, of course, a, a major hub of you know, all kinds of transportation and logistics. And you know, his good buddies, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, being on one of the teams playing in the Super Bowl— it wouldn't surprise me if that came up in conversation and if that factored into Trump's political calculus for backing down uh, on the wall, at least for, for this aspect of the shutdown. And, and the three-week uh, stay of, of uh, execution, so to speak, for this, um, this showdown on the border wall funding, it, it, you know, that, that three weeks will be after the Super Bowl ends. And maybe that's not a coincidence. Am I saying that the curtailing of the government shutdown is, is based in completely on the Super Bowl? Don't quote me on that. But it's a thought that I had. And I just no. want to um, point out that the L.A. teacher strike, uh, I was just listening to the head of the um, L.A. United Teachers uh, Union, Alex Caputo-Pearl. He's on Behind the News with Doug Henwood uh, this past week, this past Thursday. You can uh, plug that into your search engine of choice. And uh, labor activist and writer uh, and organizer Jane McAlevey was also on that episode. They were talking about how they organized for that strike, you could say, four to five years. It was a four to five year timeline of radicalizing and engaging their own members and then radicalizing and engaging the parents and other community stakeholders in their school districts and building their own resources. They raised their dues for their unions that they could fund entire additional departments that they knew they would need for this strike. And so the caveat that I want to give to my comrades in the left when we talk about a general strike, I think that language frequently, and maybe I'm just a Debbie Downer, 
that language frequently lapses into a kind of spontaneity, right? And we're just going to take to the barricades, and it'll be beautiful, and we're going to disrupt the Super Bowl. Four years of planning in a relatively well-built-up and financialized union, certainly working with a lot more resources than, say, you and I and the Green Party have to work with, David. And that's how long they were looking ahead to this strike. And that's how we need to start thinking. And thank you for that, Michael, because that underscores to me the need to have and engage in strategic thinking and planning. And it also means the ability to hash things out in a productive manner. In other words, to learn the difference between your enemy with whom you are in a pitched battle uh, and an ally or a comrade with whom you have a disagreement. One of the things that uh, I uh, I've always appreciated about organized labor is the fact that they know how to contain, uh, they have debate, but they actually know how to have some discipline uh, as they actually do that. So your point is well made, the, that strikes are not something that just happen. Uh, they require, cons- they, they consign- it's not just concerted effort, but it requires planning and organizing and relationship building. So this Uh, program is open lines. We threw out several different topics, but Joe writes in to ask, are there any Green Party candidates for president? And because it's open lines, Michael, I feel like we got to take that one head on because it's a question I don't know about you, but I get all the time. And what I can tell you is right now, there are at least, uh, I've seen five people who have uh, uh, said that they are considering seeking the Green Party's uh, nomination uh, for president, or but nobody has actually um, uh, done anything uh, that I've seen except for Dario Hunter, who is a, a local elected representative in Youngstown, Ohio, who has filed uh, for an exploratory committee. So that's the only one that I've seen. Uh, Dario Hunter, uh, a Green Party member who has filed an exploratory committee. I know that there is a draft Jesse Ventura movement. Uh, well, Jesse movement Ventura might be a little strong, David. There is a draft Jesse Ventura effort. There is a draft. I will stand corrected. There is a draft Jesse Ventura effort. Uh, it seems like there's a couple of people that are super active in it, so it's not really a movement, but there is, in fact, an effort. I do know Jesse Ventura has at least made indications that uh, of positivity towards the Green Party. Uh, uh, there are a couple of others, but it doesn't seem like there has been any more there there. Have I missed anybody, Michael? Those are the only names that I've heard as you know, publicly discussing a possible run. Yeah. But and I, I would I think, encourage folks, if there is anybody that you would like to see uh, seek the Green Party's nomination, remember that the Green Party is a democratic organization. Uh, as the former Green Party nominee for president myself, I can tell you what I did was traveled the country uh, in 2003, attending Green Party state conventions and state meetings. Uh, so anybody who is going to seek the Green Party's nomination needs to get started basically now uh, and starting to contact both the national party and state parties. I will say that there is a Green Party presidential campaign support committee that is quite active. Uh, Anybody who is uh, uh, working at the national level should look into that. But most importantly, 
if you want to see somebody seek the Green Party's nomination, or you need to contact that person or that person's representatives, it's one thing. Like I could easily do a wish list and say, I wish uh, Angela Davis would seek the Green Party's nomination. I wish Cornell West would seek the Green Party's nomination. But that is not actually the same thing as organizing a movement to try to get somebody to take the Green Party's nomination. So, Joe, uh, your question is a good one. I get it all the time. Uh, the way I answer it is to say anybody who wants to seek the Green Party's nomination should engage their local, state, or the national Green Party to learn the process. Michael O'Neill, I'm going to turn it over to you and ask, I know you must get asked that same question. How do you react when somebody says, you know, the Green Party ought to run fill in the blank of famous liberal or progressive celebrity for president? How do you respond? I respond by saying that I think we're at a point where the party needs to become better known for uh, the work that we're doing and the issues that we stand for and our principle of, of no corporate donations and our history of that as a longstanding history, not just a, a recent fashionable uh, adoption. And that we should be running more on that than on the name of a high-profile individual who maybe has little or only very recent connection to the party. Now, a lot of the people that you mentioned uh, that might be on people's wish list, they have had connections to the Green Party. And terms of maybe supporting a previous candidate for president. You know, it was a great honor to have Cornell West speak at the uh, Green Party National Convention when Jill was nominated in 2016. And there are other folks who you know, have been supportive of Green Party candidates, but have they been part of the work of actually building this party, whether at the state or national level? And if the answer is no, then that doesn't mean they should be ruled out of hand, but it does make me uh, question about you know like then you know what kind of a party are we building? Are, do we have the kind of leadership development and candidate development where we can run uh, greens who have come up within the ranks of the party and maybe who have been able to demonstrate some ability to be in government at, at a, a local level or at a at a position that's smaller in scope than president of the United States. Well, I mean, I, I think your point is well made. And I can tell you, heading into 2020, the presidential campaign is going to be just it's going to be a nightmare. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, anybody but Bush or ABB was a very real thing that we had to navigate back in 2004. And we know already that anybody but Trump a message is going to be uh, repeated ad nauseum. Uh, it's already begun. Uh, we are going to have to resist that. Uh, I can tell you my focus is going to be on the local organizing uh, because I think that that's the only place where we really have the ability to, to have a degree of influence. Of course, I believe the Green Party should run a presidential candidate. Uh, we need a standard bearer. But the real work is wherever you live, work and play. Uh, and I'll use this as an opportunity to remind folks that you are watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us online at agreenwayforward.org. You can find us on iTunes. Uh, but I do want to encourage you, if you are watching us now on Facebook, please share this link on any page that you manage or your own page. Uh, go to the website agreenwayforward.org and please sign up. 
David, I, on the point of the presidential campaign, and it's it's absurd to me that like we're already talking about not, not that you and I are talking about, it, but that the country is already talking about this because it it still feels like we're only barely over the um, previous election. But when I see what factions within the Democratic Party are doing to each other already. Boy, uh, what what they're going to have in store for third party candidates and especially third party candidates from the left, like the green is I can't even imagine what that's going to be, because you've already got um, Democrats accusing candidates of being a Putin puppet and of being spoilers. And, and that's just folks who are running within the Democratic Party. They're not even challenging the duopoly power structure. And I'm not in the business of, like, carrying around a lot of sympathy for Democrats. Uh, but it looks like with the, with the 2020 election, we're going to see the same kind of weaponized identitarianism, the kind of misapplication of identitarianism to um, as a cudgel uh, for cynical purposes – uh, but we're all that we saw in 2016. But we're also going to see just Russia baiting from from here to Election Day, basically. And and that's what they're doing to each other within the power structure. Right. And let's be clear about something. And I think your point is well made, Michael. What we're seeing is the roiling debate uh, that is actually is, in fact, happening within the, the Democratic Party. Uh that because when you say the Democratic Party uh, or one when one says that, I always have to ask, well, wait a minute, who are you talking about or which grouping? Because the leadership of the Democratic Party are uh, basically the toadies of Wall Street, the big bankers uh, and corporatism, you know, the neoliberal uh, leaders of the Democratic Party. But we have to confess and acknowledge the reality that there is a growing grassroots movement that are, in fact, either democratic socialists or are full-on leftists that are making a play within the Democratic Party. Now, you and I, Michael, have come to the conclusion that that's not likely to work. Uh, and so we are trying to build a truly independent alternative political party from junk. But I want to be clear that I don't view as leftists working within the Democratic Party as my enemy. I think they are mistaken. I think that tactically they will not win. Uh, and ultimately, I want to make the Green Party a welcoming place for them when they finally realize what you and I have realized, which is that the system itself is rigged and the leadership of the Democratic Party and the oligarchs and the wealthy will destroy that party before they will ever let uh, a genuine progressive run that part. Michael, do you think I'm being too harsh? Do you think I'm being naive? I, I welcome uh, you correcting me on air if you think I'm, uh, I'm misstating the case. I, you're entirely right that rank-and-file Democrats, and really there's very few actual configurations in American society where the rank-and-file are our enemy, Right. And and so we have to have that perspective between the rank and file and the elite that abuse and mislead and and uh, act in a, a misleadership position. But I'm reminded of a movie that is now 20 years old, The Matrix, where <laughs> anyone who was still connected to The Matrix at any time, one of those agent assassins could leap into their body 
and exercise the you know the power structure through that through that person and and i've had moments where you know folks who i've maybe had relatively good relationships with and in terms of comradely relationships where in the last year and a half they've gone full in on suspecting that that Jill Stein was funded by any combination of Putin, George Soros, um, or you know any other like wacky conspiracy theory uh, in terms of trying to figure out what what was behind Jill Stein's campaign, and wondering why you know she was uh, at an RT dinner um, where well she she was there to talk about peace actually, um, but the. The propaganda apparatus of the Democratic Party and of you know, MSNBC and, and the two-party system in general has the ability to work through rank-and-file folks who, again, they're not our enemy, but they also can be, act as an extension of the power structure whether they are witting or not. I think, you know, that, that I appreciate the subtle distinction, and you're right. Uh, any uh, of our uh, friends and uh, colleagues and comrades might be Agent Smith at any time. Put a uh, turn that into a verb, right? Uh, like it, <laughs> they got it Smith. Is, you've been Smith. Uh, so I think your point is well made, uh, and this is why I say I'm not going to treat them like my enemy, nor am I going to allow them, uh, to, uh, though, to disrupt me from the work that we have at hand. Uh, Joshua writes in. Uh, to say that it's maddening to see the ghost of Joe McCarthy stalking politics these days. And Joshua, I got to say, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it is shocking to me that the Russia, Russia, Russia trope really is an effort to revitalize McCarthyism. But just as The Matrix is now 20 years old, McCarthyism is over 50 years old. And you know what I've noticed, Joshua and Michael and everybody else listening and watching A Green Way Forward? And that is most young people don't give a rat's ass about that. The, the, the corporate media and the legacy media are beating the drumbeat uh, on Russia and Putin puppet, and they, they're trying to use it. Uh, it's only people my generation and older who are susceptible to it. What I've found, Michael, is that the people, the people like in their, say, 35 and younger, that it just bounces off of them. Has that been your experience? I don't know, David. I mean, maybe I just have a more negative view or maybe I just don't keep as great a, a circle of friends as you do. But I've I've noticed a fair amount of folks, you know, in their thirties and twenties, both, you know, people who are writing for trendy blogs and media outlets and also just folks, uh, just to everyday folks who like it, because they don't have a great memory, even necessarily of the lead up to the Iraq war. Um, maybe they were teenagers at that time, or they just, it was before they were politically activated and and they have no real living memory of McCarthyism, and if you know they don't happen to be history buffs or history wonks or uh, eco socialists like us or Reds and other any other way, they they haven't had a lot of reason to come across that history. They're not very inoculated to this at all. And the fact that Vladimir Putin is a Bond le- villain level of evil, right? It it's gives true. it gives cover to this uh, this this conspiracy theory that uh, that a he colluded with 
the Trump organization in the election, and B, that that collusion had a significant impact on the election's result, which are each of those are two big jumps. Right. Um, But and also the shock of Donald Trump being elected. And we've talked about this before, and I hate to sound like a broken record. The shock of the election of Donald Trump was so traumatic for people that I think it is preferable for folks of almost any age to believe that it was engineered by a foreign despot rather than believing that actually neoliberal capitalism as administered by the Democrat and Republican elites has bred a country full of political and moral rot that uh, really can only be addressed by a you know, radical restructuring of our society and our politics. Oh, way to go, Michael. At the very end, you actually saved it from nihilism and cynicism and actually suggested that there is a solution. I try. And that solution is actually yeah. break out of the two-party system and the duopoly. So good save at the very end there, because I was just about willing uh, to hang it up and say there's nothing that can be done. Well, that would be, uh, that would be an unfortunate way to close the show. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I try. I try to get in there at the last minute. I mean, I should probably work out my balance so it's maybe more like <laughs> 50-50 challenge and solution as opposed to 90-10. But Fair enough. We'll work on it. But, but as you noted, Michael, uh, this 30 minutes just really flew by. I got to say, I love the open lines uh, where we get uh, folks uh, writing in uh, with their suggestions and comments. Uh, I will say this. I want to make a pledge uh, to you, the viewer listener, uh, that Michael and I are going to actually revisit the Yellow Vest movement. Uh, J- uh, Joseph uh, earlier wrote in to say, uh, that Americans are the most comfortable slaves on the planet. That's the reason the Yellow Vest movement did not take off here when it really took off uh, in France and other parts of the country so quickly. So I think, Michael, this is a topic that we need to return to uh, and really think about what it would look like to do the kind of relationship building, educating, and organizing to have a successful, disruptive uh, yellow vest movement in the United States. In the meantime, I want to thank Michael O'Neill for producing and co-hosting this program. I want to thank you, the viewer listener, uh, for participating. Remember to share this on your own Facebook page or any page that you manage. If you're listening to us on a podcast, make sure to share it uh, across any of your social media, including email lists. Lastly, Go to the website, agreenwayforward.org, and sign up so we can continue to build a movement and build this program. Thanks again. Keep on keeping on. Peace. A Greenway Forward is broadcast live on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time from Dr. Jill Stein's Facebook page. Subscribe to our podcast and e-newsletter at agreenwayforward.org to make sure that you never miss an episode. You can also find us and rate us on iTunes, with more podcast platforms being added each week. Our theme music is Retro Future Dirty by Kevin McLeod, whose fine music can be found at incomptech.com and is available for use under a Creative Commons attribution license. This is Michael O'Neill for David Cobb reminding you to please spread the word about A Green Way Forward and to send us your thoughtful questions and comments to agreenwayforward at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.